The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week we're focusing on events on both coasts of the US, Freeze Los Angeles and a show in New York of art from the Sahel region in the Southern Sahara. Before that, just a reminder that you can sign up for our free daily newsletter for all the latest news. Go to theartnewspaper.com and you'll find the newsletter link at the top right of the page. It's the second edition of Freeze Los Angeles, which the company Endeavour, Freeze's relatively new owner, is hoping will consolidate the fair's presence in its home city. But what does the art scene in Los Angeles make of Freeze's presence? Is it embracing the fair with open arms, or does it pose a threat to an art community that prides itself on its distinctive feel to the New York scene? Jory Finkel, our Los Angeles correspondent, joins me on the line now. Jory, I'd like to begin by asking, does LA really want a great big fair and a big market presence in the city? That is such a good question, and I do not want to speak on behalf of all of LA, of course, but I can tell you that I feel like opinion on the ground is a little bit mixed, that as exciting as it is to have Freeze Week, you know, we have the fair in town, so we have have a major art fair in the form of Freeze, but there's also Freeze Week, the talks, the screenings. The galleries putting on their best shows, the artists opening up their studios, everything that goes along with Freeze. As exciting as that is, I do think that some people are wary of this becoming another or a more traditional art market capital. So can you say, like, for people that don't know L.A., who've never been there, does L.A. feel that it has a kind of different presence in the American ecosystem, the art ecosystem, than New York does? Does it pride itself on that difference? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the shorthand I used to use when I was on staff at the LA Times to explain it to editors who didn't follow the art world at all is that New York was so much at the time, and this was 10 years ago, that New York was so much the center of consumption in terms of art, but that LA was recognized and appreciated and really celebrated as a major center of production, that the artists live here. There are major art schools here. I mean, we're talking five major art schools um, that have drawn artists to L.A. for many years and kept artists here because they offered teaching jobs. And so does that, because of that, the art school mentality, the sort of communities that those art schools engender, do you therefore have a certain almost, I mean, obviously artists need to live, but do you have a certain sort of resistance to market forces in LA to a certain degree? You know, I think it plays out in really interesting ways. Of course, you know, artists need to make a living and I think they appreciate the art market as well. You know, they want galleries and they want galleries to show their work and they want galleries to sell their work. So I don't want to paint artists as a kind of naive part of the ecosystem, But I do think that artists are participating in the market in really interesting ways. I just wrote a story for the New York Times on artist-run galleries, for example, which have a really long, rich tradition in Los Angeles that – Uh, Eve Fowler, for example, is an artist who started her own space, um, co-founded a space called Artist Curated Projects. And she said that one of the reasons, maybe the reason she founded the space was to give artists more agency, that artists aren't just there to produce objects for this market. 
Um, and in her case, it was yeah, giving herself more agency. She was opening up her own apartment to creating exhibitions for her friends, for artists she really cared about. And she let other artists curate the shows. So the you can see in the way that artists are doing things in town. I think we saw this with Laura Owen's space as well um, that closed down recently. That artists are opening their own spaces um, as a way of participating really actively in the market. And and how do those spaces operate? Are they um, spaces that sell work or do they completely avoid being market related? I think they're both. You know, it's all over the spectrum. And um, But for the New York Times, I focused on artist-run commercial galleries in particular because I wanted to show that it's even part, it's not just that artists run spaces, pop-ups here and there, or garage spaces or apartment galleries. It's not that they're, it's not just that they're part of the ecosystem. They're actually part of the market here. That you can, there are over a dozen artists run galleries that are part of the art market. And four of them are in freeze this year. Right. Now, you've also done this piece, this really interesting piece, which is actually in the, one of the art newspapers dailies that we're having at Freeze LA. And 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 that's really interesting because it, you, there you're talking about non-profit spaces and the rise of these sort of grassroots spaces. Can you tell us more about that? And a few of those are founded by artists. I was talking about the Underground Museum, which has been phenomenally successful. Um, successful, maybe not by financial standards, it's a, it's a nonprofit, but in terms of bringing out a community and appealing to community and having these great events in what they call the Purple Garden in, in their backyard. Um, I'm talking about Art and Practice, Mark Bradford's nonprofit that is in Lamart Park and has a social justice component to it. Um, the Mistake Room, led by Cesar Garcia, um, so basically what I realized, I, I was absolutely fascinated by this by this topic because I realized that about five years ago, a number of these alternative spaces um, were founded or opened in Los Angeles, that we have some legacy alternative spaces like Lace and then LAX Art, which started in maybe 2005, 2006, um, and 18th Street Center as well. But uh, in addition to the legacy alternative art spaces, a whole new generation of, of alternative spaces um, was founded just about five or six years ago. Um, and in the story which you read, Erin Cristoval, the curator at the Hammer Museum, says that she thinks a number of these spaces were created in order to promote artists of color. Right. So so is it was that a perception that perhaps the more mainstream museums weren't doing enough of that and therefore there was a need for a need to fill a gap, essentially? Yeah, that's the point that she made. And I think it's a really interesting point to consider. Um, I don't think people have thought, you know, really consider the role of these spaces together because they're so new. Um, but when you look at them, yes, I think the Underground Museum is definitely um, has has developed a niche for itself. Um, because the mainstream art museums are not doing um, that kind of programming. Was there any sense in which they were also responding to the mainstream art market? Because in a way, uh, perhaps it's a false binary, but one imagines that in in terms of the art ecosystem that we keep talking about, on the one hand, you have the commercial gallery, and then these grassroots spaces are in a way a sort of diametric opposite to them. When you were talking to these people, did they talk about the market and how what they're doing relates to it at all? Yeah, I don't know if we were focusing so much on the market. Um, 
and I don't know if I I don't know if I buy the binary. I feel like the spaces I was looking at are these mid-sized spaces that are one step away from being museums. Um, they tend to be Kunsthalls. They don't have their own collections. Um, but they certainly, you know, for another another example of an institution I looked at for this story is the ICALA, which has undergone a lot of changes in the last decade because it moved from Santa Monica, where it used to be known as the Santa Monica Museum of Art, to downtown LA, right across from a Greyhound bus station. So you have a, a very present homeless community. And the ICALA has always done these really fascinating sh- so both both as the ICALA and in its previous incarnation as the Santa Monica Museum of Art, this institution has has a history of doing really interesting shows that do not follow the art market, that are just askew. So I don't I don't think they're opposed to the art market, but um, in many cases they anticipate the art market. You know, giving Micheline Thomas or William Pope L major surveys before they became art market darlings. So, you know, maybe maybe I'm um, understanding your point a little bit better that, yeah, these alternative spaces are trying to make space for artists who are not anointed yet or at all. Indeed. You, you mentioned there about, you know, the movement of a particular space from Santa Monica to downtown. Tell me something about the the geography of L.A. and 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 how that has shifted. You know, we we hear constantly about shifts in New York from various neighborhoods to another one. How how has L.A. shifted? Oh, L.A. is so spread out. Um, that's actually one of the really interesting things I discovered in reporting this story for the art newspaper on the alternative spaces. The one kind of newsy through line is that a number of these spaces are reducing the number of exhibitions they hold each year. So instead of four or five, they're looking at three or two. And it's because people in LA can't get out to see all the shows. There are also financial reasons, I imagine, too. But um, galleries as well. It's really hard to see all the gallery shows within a six-week period. Um, So if the galleries could start keeping their shows up for eight to ten weeks, I would benefit from it personally. (laughs) Um, L.A. is so spread out. I mean, there's so so there's no one center. um, And even when we say downtown, we often don't mean one thing. Um, Some people say downtown and they're talking about the area where Hauser and Worth has opened. Some people say downtown and they're talking about where Night Gallery is located, um, that even the downtown galleries are spread out. And that's not counting all the galleries in Hollywood, the galleries still in Culver City, and the galleries further east. I mean, one imagines, you know, I, I, my my idea of LA is that the the communities are not geographies so much as related to the art colleges, that you had groups of artists that have emerged from, from the art colleges and they have developed particular strands of work. I mean, it's not completely consistent, but is, is that still the case? Yeah, I mean, I certainly see that socially. I don't think I see that in terms of the types of work that artists make, but I see that socially in that, yes, there are certain groups of friendships or certain cliques that develop um, because of where people went to art school. Um, But I think it's actually gotten more complicated than that because a gallery is another form of community, right? The dozen artists who show at a particular gallery get to know each other that way. Um, or last night, I went to an opening for Kalita Rowles, who is having her first major show at Various Small Fires. And she's a Black female artist, a painter. Um, and her community showed up. 
her community includes Diedrich Brackens and Genevieve Gagnard, who are both um, both artists she knows, and Diedrich shows with that gallery and introduced her to the gallerist. Um, her community also includes Amy Sherald, who flew in from New York for it. So what you're saying is that LA is less definable in, in terms of um, groups of artists, group, uh, certain geographies. In other words, there's lots of very individual artists still working, but actually within a very dynamic scene. Yeah, I would love for some artist or sociologist to map out all the connections between among the artists. It used to be that I could see the clicks in terms of the art schools more clearly, but I just think that LA has become a more uh, robust and complex place. You were talking earlier on about not getting the chance to see everything. Uh, as with London, Freeze Week now in LA has dozens and dozens of shows opening. Can you just give us a flavour of some of the things that you're most excited about, particularly in terms of the public shows? The public shows, yeah. Um, well, I just this weekend went to the opening of All of Them Witches, which is the biggest group show I have ever seen at Jeffrey Deitch's gallery here. I know he's done some big group shows in New York, but it, it was curated by Laurie Simmons, the artist, and Dan Nadell. And it's about artists, mainly women artists, who make witchy works, who have a witchy sensibility. So it's not literally, not artists who identify as witches, although there are a couple in the show, <laughs> um, but but artists who are using occult imagery um, as metaphors often for um, uh, body and gender issues. Um, and it was really, I one of the things I loved about the show is how intergenerational it was. Um, it wasn't just L.A. artists. It was artists from all over. But you had younger artists. You had kind of hot young thing artists. And then you had some um, second wave feminist artists as well. Um, so it was really it was really fun that way. It was a great opening. You you interviewed Luchita Hurtado for the current issue of the art newspaper, of course. And she has a show in L.A. at the moment, right? It opened last night. So I just saw Luchita Hurtado's show at LACMA. And... I had never seen so much of her work in one place. I don't think anyone has until this show. It was it, This is a version of the show that originated at the Serpentine. Um, and I was really amazed by how textured some of the work is. Um, I just also, I feel like it's a sweet spot for me. I love this kind of, her early surrealist work, the work that has the most direct relationship to Wolfgang Palin, who was her second husband. I just love that stuff. And what about other, other uh, shows at the major spaces? You know, I haven't seen the Hammer Museum has a, a Paul McCarthy drawing show that I haven't seen yet. I need to make it over. I think the gallery shows are really uh, where it's at right now. And one discovery for me recently is the artist Miyoshi Baroche, who died last year. There are not not just one, but three galleries in L.A. have decided to show her work at the same time. And that's up right now. It's at the Pitt, at Night Gallery, and at Luis de Jesus. Um, and it's it's installation work uh, that deals with the fragility of the human body in interesting ways. I make it sound like Ava Hess, but it's not. <laughs> but we can't really talk about the L.A. scene without talking about somebody who's very sadly is, is lost to the uh, L.A. scene uh, recently. And that's John Baldessari, the artist who died. Um John was a giant of a man in physical stature, but also a giant of a man in terms of his influence in the L.A. scene. Can you can you say something about about that, Jory? Yeah, I'd love to talk about John. Um, you know, some people ended up calling him a gentle giant, 
which I think is is totally wrong. I mean, you're you're right. He 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 was very tall then, but um, he was very sharp or rigorous in in ways that were just wonderful. Um, a friend of mine, an artist named Kim Schoenstatt, worked for him for many years as his studio manager, and she said something that has just resonated with me ever since his death, that he knew how to put just the right weight on things. Um, that means on words, on images, you know, his his sense of humor. Um, and I guess I'm talking about his artwork a little bit, just how he uh, managed to kind of rescue conceptual art from its own self-seriousness or its own gravitas. Um, but then there's the then there's the contribution he made by being this really generous person on very, very active on the scene. That's right. And that consisted both of being a teacher, but also, you know, extraordinary support for other artists, right? Yeah. And it was all it was all of one piece, really, for him. I mean, you know, I've lived here for 15 years now. And for the first 10 years when he was well, he was out and about at openings. Um, he he showed up for people. Um, and as a teacher, he he literally gave artists some of their best ideas. In 1970, when he was teaching his famous post-studio class at CalArts, he had this assignment list that was over 100 ideas. And some of them seem really quaint now, like make make a work of art using walkie-talkies. And and I you know I I've always looked at that list and thought, you know how generous for him to come up with all of these ideas, share them with his students. Somebody today could make a career out of any one of those ideas, and here he is sharing over a hundred with his students. Um, I remember when I interviewed Analia Saban um, when she had a big show at, at Spruth Mogger's here, um, and she was uh, really good friends with John. Um, she told me that he helped her come up with the title for one of her series, that she was stuck, and he came up with this title, Threadbare, for the series um, where she made paint look like a canvas. <laughs> Perfect right. title, but also just another example of how generous he was in his thinking. And that's not always the case, is it? Because very often te- great teachers aren't necessarily great artists. And with John, he, you know, he had major retrospectives actually towards the end of his life, for instance, the one that was at Tate Modern, I know, began in, in the US. Um, so, you know, in a way, he's quite rare in the sense that he both managed to achieve great fame and continue to teach and continue to have that kind of community influence, if you like. Absolutely. And I also love you can go back through his work that, you know, the artwork that he um, put into the galleries and you can see him think about teaching. You know, he has this early video series where he has like it's like teaching um, a plant the alphabet. (laughs) He was interested in teaching. He was interested in communication. Um, He's one of our great, you know, great artists of language. And, and particularly when you say, when you talk about language, well, actually, there's two things I think of. One is him singing Sol Lewitt's instructions, on the one hand, in a video, but then also the text uh, paintings, which were enormously influential. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think he's right up there with, like, Lawrence Weiner in terms of how he uses words to open up the imagination. Yeah, he is indeed a great loss. Joey, thanks so much for coming on today and for telling us about LA and uh, enjoy the rest of the week in Freeze. Oh, I was happy to do it, Ben, and I will enjoy the week. (laughs) 
Now, Freeze Los Angeles is held at Paramount Pictures Studios in Hollywood, and the project section is staged on a New York City film set at the studios. The projects are co-curated by Pilar Tompkins-Rivas, and our deputy art market editor, Margaret Carrigan, spoke to her on the set. So, Pilar, last year, the backlot projects were maybe one of the more popular areas of the fair. It's a really interesting setup really utilizes the Paramount studio in a unique way. There's also plenty of like area to hang out. You know, there's a food court back here. Um, can you kind of set the stage for our listeners about what they, what the lot brings and how you kind of try and plan for presenting work here? Um, yes, I, I'm, first of all, I have to say that this is a really unique thing in the context of art fairs. There's a lot of art fairs that take place around the world. Um, Freeze is one of the most renowned, you know, fairs internationally, but by bringing it to Los Angeles and choosing to do it at Paramount, um, it just provides this really unique opportunity for a new context to present contemporary art projects. In and of itself, presenting artwork at, at uh, the backlot is a little bit like trying to cite public artworks because you have to take certain things into account um, uh, in terms of, you know, the elements and um, and how things can physically be installed here, what kind of media you can present. Um, but this is so different and unique um, as well because you have an active studio lot um, and, and it looks like New York or Chicago. This is uh, this is a space that already has a visual read to it that has its own history and its own particular connotations. And so that becomes kind of a set of parameters around which you have to develop the project. Some of the projects are staged within the specific buildings that are on the back lot. Others are more strategically placed around the back lot itself and outside. And others are like on-site performances. How do you plan all of those? And, and what are some of the specific logistics you have to take into account? Well, I mean, we've got, uh, we had a number of interesting proposals that were forwarded by galleries. Um, we started, you know, with that in terms of a departure point and trying to see, you know, what kind of um, narratives that we could call out of of um of of the works um to to bring them together um we from there you know began thinking about um other artists that we wanted to engage some of which work with galleries that are presenting in the main fair and others that don't and so that became an, an interesting and you know unique um way of beginning to organize and beginning to lay the groundwork for the plan. Um, you know, moving beyond that, you have to recognize that this is so unlike, you know, doing an exhibition in a museum or a gallery or a white cube space where you have control over display. And here we have to kind of think about all these things as they develop and and there's certain things that you have to troubleshoot that you wouldn't necessarily have predicted, like uh, slopes on the ground, or, or you know, you're planning for you're planning what, like what kind of work can sh- be shown in an interior space, but knowing that it's not watertight, and in case it rains, it could become completely drenched. So you have to just kind of think uh, through that, and that in, in in and of itself informed decisions about uh, diversity of media. Um, the backlot also has a lot of other things going on. 
as you mentioned, you know, you've got uh, the food court, if you will, um, other, you know, there's a, other organizations, art organizations um, are being presented as well. And uh, it's a really dynamic and vibrant setting in which the art is activated, you know, across all these different points. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of art you brought this year and what some of the specific projects are and what kind of L.A. flavor they lend to what is a New York backdrop? Well, many of the artists do have a connection to L.A. or are based in Los Angeles, and others are not. Um, other, We wanted to also, you know, create this kind of outward-looking conversation about things that might touch back to uh, the specific context of Los Angeles and other things that that are more global in focus. Um, um, you know, we have an artist from Brazil who is from Recife, uh, Brazil, named Jonathan Giandraje, for example, that has a wonderful video piece that he filmed on the streets of Sao Paulo and Recife, where he asked passersby to open up their wallets and reveal their contents. And they kind of slowly open up the, their billfolds. And inside you see all these very personal, very private things that actually indicate a lot about the individuals that those wallets belong to. And so it's here on the back lot. Um, it doesn't have a tie to L.A. in any way specifically, but it can speak more broadly to these other kinds of issues that the market connects to. And so I think that creates an interesting dialogue. We're also we're interested in working with artists from the Americas, and that's somebody that Rita Gonzalez, my co-curator, and I had been thinking about before for a previous project. Um and didn't have the chance to work with. So this is a chance to to present uh, his work here um, in the fair. Um, another artist that is international that, that also kind of gives a historic nod to California is Tanya Candiani. And she's an artist from Mexico who is making a piece that's based on images um, – uh, that Dorothea Lang took of the Japanese Americans in the internment camps, specifically in Manzanar and in uh, Santa Anita during World War II. And her work deals a lot with, uh, with labor issues, uh, with, um, technologies around, uh, textiles. And, and so this is a piece that in a way harkens back to the documentation of Japanese Americans, most of whom were, you know, many of whom were hailing from Los Angeles who were forced into weaving these camouflage nets that would cover um, military vehicles during the war. Um, and so she's recreating these kind of makeshift looms uh, that were that were made uh, where they were weaving in. That's not that far from here where this happened historically. So she's kind of asking us to look at that history, not to forget that past, and then to think about the detention centers for migrants today, um, thinking about issues of labor around uh, you know, around, uh, migrants, you know, today and, and incarceration. Um, so, you know, I think that that's a kind of a project that really hits on a lot of levels of things that we were thinking about. And then may, you may jump from there to other conversations with other artists that we're engaging for projects here. There are a lot of works in the project section this year that are very political, but there's still a certain amount of playfulness to a lot of it as well. Maybe just by virtue of the fact that it is on a set where you're, you know, you're not sure what's real and what's not. And a couple of the artists, uh, as well have really kind of 
drawn in that Hollywood history mm-hmm. and played with a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about a few of those? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there, you know, there's a, a kind of messaging that can happen in any one of the works, but yet at the same time, it doesn't have to hit you over the head. Um, and, and I, and I think, you know, th- that different artists have different approaches and, um, and, and it's really, you know, about, uh, again, creating dialogues and, and making you think. Um, you know, the artist Vincent Ramos, who is from Los Angeles, deals with archives. It looks at, historical representations of Latinos and Mexican Americans and Chicanos specifically in, uh, in the entertainment industry. And so his, his project is this kind of culling of images over, um, the course of many decades, uh, going back to the 1920s, um, some of which pertain to Hollywood, um, but also how they get circulated and manifested in popular culture. And so within that, you know, you, you, you're looking at these issues of representation, but you might be also looking at an image of the Frito Bandito or, um, Cheech and Chong up in smoke. So it, it kind of conjures a lightheartedness, um, and pokes fun at that as well. Um, but then it also makes you really think about, you know, st- stereotypes and, um, and lack of representation. Um, but other artists, you know, um, also have a, a whimsy, you know, to the work that, that, uh, kind of brings you kind of full circle with other, art histories in Southern California. I'm thinking specifically of, of, um, maybe like Sayer Gomez or Will Boone or Mungo Thompson, for example, who have all created these really amazing sculptures that are cited on the back lot. And, um, you're just kind of thinking about, um, this kind of history of, of art making that deals with, um, you know, materiality that, uh, is kind of specific to, uh, technologies that were developed in, in, in this area, in this region. And that makes me think about, um, you know, the light and space movement and, uh, you know, artists that were dealing, you know, with vacuum form plastics and all these, uh, these great kind of materials that were new at their time and that interplay with technologies, um, either kind of going backwards in time to, I, I don't know, a, a more, uh, direct approach to the media or, or, let me just uh, mention, for example, you know, with with Will's piece, um, he has three works in the in in the project section, and he's taken these toy kits that were uh, developed in the fifties and very popular in the fifties and sixties model model kits, uh, which in and of themselves may reference Hollywood films from like Creature from the Black Lagoon or Frankenstein or any of those kind of um, horror genre. Uh, films, but they were then made into like these little, uh, metal toy maquettes that people could build and then they would paint with their hobby craft paint. And he's upscaled them and cast them in bronze and removed them from their original sets configurations to create these new, uh, types of sculptures. I think the witch's sculpture is my absolute favorite so far that I've seen. It's really funny and it just kind of shocks you and you're like, why is this even here? And it makes yeah. you ask a lot of questions. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. This has been really wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Freeze Los Angeles begins today and is on until Sunday the 16th of February. You can follow our live reporting from the fair at theartnewspaper.com. 
A bit later, we'll be looking at a new show at the Metropolitan Museum. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. It's auction week in London, and Sotheby's sale on Tuesday night delivered mixed results, totalling £79.2 million, or £92.5 million with fees, just above its low estimate. As Annie Shaw reports, Banksy continued his recent art market surge. This time it was his work Vote to Love, an altered version of a Vote Leave placard from the Brexit referendum. It sold for £950,000, or £1.2 million, with fees, which was more than double its low estimate. However, the night's most anticipated lot, David Hockney's Californian pool painting The Splash, failed to live up to its name and instead prompted little more than a ripple. It sold, without anything resembling a bidding war, for £21 million or £23.2 million with fees, just above the £20 million low estimate. The total for Christie's contemporary art sale on Wednesday, £46.8 million or £56.2 million with fees, was down around 30% on last year and was the auction house's lowest result for this season in a decade. The French-Algerian artist Zineb Sadira says that she will not stand down as the representative of France at the 2021 Venice Biennale after being caught up in an ongoing row over her support for Palestine. As Gareth Harris reports, the latest development comes after Isart, a group that promotes cultural exchange between France and Israel, called on the French culture minister, Frank Riester, to renounce Sadira's appointment. Sadira said it was an attempt to silence me and infringe on my freedom of expression. Meanwhile, Sonia Boyce will make the next work for the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. And finally, Blaine Southern is to close its galleries in London, Berlin and New York, as its co-founder Harry Blaine is unable to secure the gallery's future, he announced on Wednesday. Blaine launched the gallery in London in 2010 with co-founder Graham Southern, who's no longer involved in the business, having split from Blaine last autumn. The news came after the gallery had been steadily losing artists and staff. British artist Matt Collishaw announced via Instagram on Tuesday that he parted company with the gallery. Jake and Dinos Chapman similarly took to social media in November to say that they had left Blaine Southern. And in December, Charles Somerez-Smith, the former director of the National Gallery in London and chief executive of the Royal Academy, left his post as senior director after just one year. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back at the Met after this. Sir Ernest Shackleton's Imperial Transantarctic Exhibition of 1914-1917 to is one of the great feats of human daring and valour. Attempting to sail across the Weddell Sea, the expedition ship Endurance became trapped in pack ice, eventually disintegrating in October 1915. The dramatic escape of the crew is the stuff of legend. The expedition's official photographer, Australian Frank Hurley, captured life on board the stricken vessel and the ship's final hours. A newly discovered rare presentation album of Hurley's photographs of scenes and incidents in connection with the happenings to the Weddell Sea Party is offered at Bonham's Travel and Exploration Sale on the 26th of February. As Bonham's head of books and photographs, Matthew Haley, put it, Hurley's images convey the terrible situation in which the men on endurance found themselves and have come to define for us the heroic age of Antarctic exploration as it drew to a close. For more about this story, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has just opened a sweeping exhibition about the region known as the Western Sahel, the vast area on the southern edge of the Sahara that today encompasses Senegal, Mali, Mauritania and Niger. Tracing the region's cultural legacy, the show features some 200 objects dating from the first millennium through to the late 19th century. Much of the Sahel has been rocked by instability in recent years, including devastating droughts and violent attacks by Islamist militants. 
Nancy Kenny, our senior editor in New York, talked with the organiser of the exhibition, the Met curator Elisa Lagama, about some of the ideas underlying the show. Elisa, how did you come up with the idea for this exhibition? This is an important topic for the humanities that's been neglected by art history. And four years ago, when we were closing our last major African art exhibition, Congo, Majesty and Power, I decided that the moment was right to turn our focus to another region of the continent that had a very different history, a very different relationship with the world at large. Uh, And I had been following the work of archaeologist Roderick McIntosh, who's now at Yale University, for uh, some 25 years. And he and I had been in conversation about the fact that uh, this was a timely topic to address, uh, given the importance of the cultural legacy of this region and uh, the security issues that were developing on the ground. And so uh, in 2016, uh, we uh, proposed this project um, for the museum, and um, it's been a uh, four-year-long process of developing it and um, bringing it into the public eye. Does the show have a thesis or an argument? And a critical thesis for this project is what is the role of figuration in the art of the Sahel? Uh, this is a region that um, today is uh, around 95% Islamic, um, and it has a long history with Islam, and yet... Um, When we think of art from this particular region, we tend to think about figurative wood sculpture. And so I was very interested in looking at what the historical precedents are for the classical Dogon and Bamana sculptures that everybody is more familiar with and to see how deep into the many-layered history figuration goes. There's been significant pressure in recent years for the restitution of historical artifacts and objects from African countries. Did that pressure make it difficult to arrange loans of prized objects from the region? Quite the contrary. Uh, We had um, enthusiastic uh, responses from uh, all of the colleagues uh, across the Western Sahel that we borrowed works from. As you doubtless know, uh, museum projects are all about relationships. And um, we, uh, as an institution uh, that uh, has a long history of organizing exhibitions of African art, uh, have very deep ties with our colleagues in the region. And uh, when we explained to them what the goal of this project was, they were very keen to be a part of it and to be partners. 
Um, I, I would say that the the most complicated part of this was that um, most of the institutions that we borrowed from are government institutions. And so there were many government ministries that had to finalize the approval of loans. Um, uh, so that was a bit of a, a lengthy process. But um, then the other complicated dimension to a project like this is um, the the lack of um, established networks for um, packing and shipping art um, back and forth between um, this region and um, the U.S. We had actually quite a few um, twists and turns uh, uh, in Niger, uh, the airport's cargo facility unexpectedly was shut down because of security issues, um, just as we were supposed to be sending uh, the works that we're presenting from Niger. And uh, and it really was um, a, a nail-biting uh, uh, experience to try and troubleshoot that situation. Um, but miraculously, every work that um, we had hoped to bring over from the region um, is now on display in the, um, the special exhibition gallery that we're preparing to open. Well, in some cases, the mechanics of arranging for the loans and transporting these masterpieces must have been really tricky. Um, I see that there's a three-ton, eighth-century megalith from Dakar. Um, how did you get that to the United States? Yes, um, and uh, three tons, as I know now, translates into 8,000 pounds. <laughs> and um, this um, stone megalith, from Senegal, which was carved out of the laterite soil in the region where it was once um, part of an outdoor um, installation, sort of like um, Stonehenge, was something that I very was very keen on having as the point of entry into this exhibition from the moment that I proposed this project. I really felt that... Um, not only does African art too often get decoupled from a sense of history, but it also uh, we needed a, a true landmark uh, to ground all of the great works of art that we were assembling. Um, and so uh, we literally had to lift this monument out of its um, usual position in front of the Ifan Museum in downtown Dakar, um, have it um, placed in an enormous crate and shipped by sea. Um, it was um, over a month um, traveling to get to New York. And um, we saw that the most complicated part of the journey was actually making it out of the loading dock and into the upstairs galleries. Um, 
navigating uh, the museum's arms and armor and uh, and medieval galleries. But um, it was um, an epic undertaking, and I'm an enormous fan of my colleague, who's our registrar, who orchestrated all of these arrangements. You could say that the region is in some ways a crisis zone today, couldn't you? Yes, what's happening, unfolding in this region um, is, is is very troubling. It's very, uh, it's cause for enormous concern. Uh, it's a crisis that began in 2011 and um, has not ameliorated. Um, and friends and colleagues in the region uh unfortunately, don't see um, relief in sight. Uh, there is um, growing violence and tension uh, that has been caused by uh, extremists uh, who, uh, in the case of Mali, at times have occupied nearly the northern half of the country. Uh, and I know that, you know, in my experience, a very significant dimension of the, for example, the Malian and the Nigerian economies depended on cultural tourism. And the fact that the um, instability in this region is by necessity uh, leading to less visitation is putting enormous strain on people's livelihoods uh, and cultural sites um, across the region. You also have Islamic militants leading an all-out assault on Mali's cultural heritage, don't you? Yes, the iconoclasm that occurred in a city like Timbuktu uh was really a sobering awakening to the fragility of um, cultural heritage in this region um, and how vulnerable um, so many of the storied uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites even uh, have been. Uh, we have, as uh, one of our collaborators, the uh, Mama Haidara Library in Timbuktu, who has lent several of the manuscripts that were taken out of Timbuktu um, during uh, the period when the Al-Qaeda affiliates had occupied Timbuktu and were uh, destroying libraries and other monuments. And this crisis is not over. Um, all of those materials that were moved to Bamako for safekeeping are still there indefinitely. Uh, people do not feel that they can move um, precious documents like the ones that we are exhibiting in uh, Sahel in Timbuktu at present. It's still, still uh, too tenuous, um, the, the security situation on the ground. Well, thank you for joining us, Elisa. Thank you. Sahel, Art and Empires on the Shores of the Sahara is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York until the 10th of May. 
And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julie Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David's also the editor. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julie Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. Thanks to Margaret and Pilar, to Jory, to Nancy and Elisa. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we have an interview with the artist Shirin Neshat. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.